So we are in Matthew's gospel, the gospel according to Matthew. If you um, didn't bring a Bible, uh, you can download one very quickly. Um, so you can get, a, we're, we're reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Also, if you prefer something like this, something with paper, something you can feel like this, there are Bibles on the front table. Uh, so nobody's going to be distracted at all, nobody's going to be bothered if you walk over and, and, and pick up one of those Bibles. If you don't have a Bible at home, take that one with you uh, and read it. That this, the way that we do church, the way that I preach, is to go verse by verse through the Bible. So if, if, you're, if you're not looking at a Bible during the sermon, you will be lost. Uh, you can ask anybody who's been here for more than a few weeks. Um, but we are in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 16, and we're beginning tonight in verse 24. Matthew 16, verse 24. And we'll just go to verse 28, the end of the chapter. This is the word of our Lord. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask the Lord to help us understand this. Father in heaven, we pray that we could better understand what all of this means. We weren't there standing with those disciples. We weren't there standing with Jesus. We're here. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, and so we know that it's going to take your Holy Spirit to open up our ears to hear what Jesus is saying here. We know that to understand this, we need the wisdom that comes from you. So give us that wisdom. Lord, I pray that the studying, the reading, and the prayers and the preparation for tonight that you have driven me to would, would be fruitful. And that we would all see Jesus more clearly because we were able to understand your word. That's this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for those of you who have been with us for a little while, um, this passage might sound familiar to you. And if it does, it's not deja vu. Je Jesus has already said some of these things before. Back in chapter 10 of Matthew's gospel, when he sent the disciples out and told them to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven was near, he told them at that time that the people that they trusted, the people whose opinions they valued, the people that they loved the most, 
would likely disown them for their allegiance to Jesus. And then back in Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 and 38, Jesus said this to the disciples, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's very, very familiar, isn't it? We just read something almost exactly like that. We can assume from back there in Matthew 10 that the disciples continued to follow him after he had given them that notice. And since that time, as we've walked along with the disciples, we have seen the story unfold, haven't we? It's now become abundantly clear that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Peter confessed it. Jesus affirmed it. And then last week, Jesus says, as the promised Messiah, he must go to Jerusalem to be killed and on the third day be raised up. And then we saw Peter, he refuted that. And then he was rebuked by Jesus. Well, our passage this week, to kind of bring us up to speed, our passage this week happens right after Jesus admonishes Peter. So it's really, ignore the, the, the heading there, it's just a continuation of what he had told Peter, only now he's talking to the rest of the disciples. So in verse 24, he says the same thing he said back in chapter 10. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Which tells us that even though Peter has just been given this this theological punch in the face by Jesus, the good kind, the kind that we all need, Jesus is still offering him discipleship. You can still follow me, Peter. I'm not sending you away. But if you're going to follow after me, you've got to understand this is not going to be a peaceful journey. And he's not just saying this to Peter. He's saying this to all of the disciples who were there. This goes for all of you. He's saying, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. So so think of this as another opportunity for the disciples to turn back. He's telling them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die. If you come with me, you've got to know it's not about you anymore. You have to deny yourself to be my disciple. You have to die to yourself because it's about to get really hard. Either you're with me and you're for me and you're willing to suffer what I'm going to suffer or you're for yourself. Can't be both. There's no both. Now the question that we have to ask, that's that's sort of what's going on with Jesus and the disciples. The question that we have to ask today is whether or not that statement of Jesus applies to us. Think think about it. You and I are not physically following behind Jesus as he makes his way to Jerusalem to die. He told them, if you come after me, which is to say, if you come after me to Jerusalem, we're not there. We are on the other side of Calvary, aren't we? On this side of Calvary, Jesus has already died. He's already risen. He's already ascended into heaven. He's already been enthroned at the Father's right hand as Messiah King. 
the Spirit that has already been sent. The church has already been established and has already begun to spread over the entire world. We are nearly two millennia into the king's rule. And you and I are not being asked to follow Jesus to Jerusalem. So how does, how does Jesus' challenge to the disciples apply to us? Or, or does it? When we identify as Christians today, are we even, is it even right to say we're following after Jesus? Or, or is being a Christian today different somehow than it was for them? Well, to answer that question, and it's important. You might not have asked that question, but that's how I read the Bible. If it's written to these guys, I'm later. How, how does it get to me? To answer that question, we have to fast forward a little bit in the disciples' lives. The, the apostles, though they followed Jesus to Jerusalem, and we'll see this in the rest of Matthew, they had a lot of trouble actually being willing to deny themselves for Jesus. So Jesus is commanding, you've got to deny yourself to follow me. They had trouble doing that, especially as his death drew near. Peter, one of our main characters here, he will actually come to the point where rather than denying himself, he tries to save himself by denying any association with Jesus. Not once, but three times. And it wasn't just Peter. Like we, we focus on Peter. It wasn't just him. All of the disciples abandoned the king the night of his betrayal. And the next day, the next day, Good Friday, when the soldiers, the soldiers are looking for someone to physically carry Jesus' cross for him. It is not the disciples who are there by the roadside fighting for the opportunity, is it? They're, they're AWOL. They're nowhere to be found. The soldiers end up conscripting some guy from North Africa to take up the cross. Someone who, as far as we can tell, doesn't even know Jesus. So you and I will not really see this risk-it-all, death-to-self, boldness for Christ in the disciples until after the Holy Spirit is poured out on them. Once the disciples have been given the Holy Spirit, then they begin to live this self-denying, total allegiance to Christ type of life. In other words, it's not until Pentecost that they're actually empowered to take up their crosses. This is, this is consistent with what we know actually happened at the cross. As it turns out, the self-denying life, the, the death self and follow Christ life that Jesus demands wasn't even possible before the crucifixion. Though the disciples could physically follow Jesus, they weren't morally and spiritually capable of denying themselves to do it. Throughout the Gospels, as Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem, the disciples are not models of self-denial. It's not just that night before he was betrayed or the night of his betrayal. It's not just that night. The whole, the whole gospel story that we see, instead of denying themselves, what do we see the disciples doing consistently? They're fighting. Who gets to be at the Father's right hand? Or who gets to be at the King's right hand? They're, they're trying to advance themselves to be first. 
That's characteristic of the pre-crucifixion life of a disciple. We see the, the little kids coming to Jesus, and these, these little kids are kind of just street rats, and, and the disciples are shooing them away. They don't understand that the, the last shall be first. Throughout the, the story in Matthew, the disciples miss what it means to be a disciple, a loyal citizen of Christ's coming kingdom. And when it came down to the actual cross-bearing, self-denying sacrifice, they're totally incapable. And so Jesus, Jesus had to take their worldly, fleshly way of living to the cross. It had to be nailed to the cross in order that they could live for Jesus, the King. 2 Corinthians 5.15 is really, really important in here. You don't have to flip there. I'm going to read it two times and just let it sink in, okay? The Apostle Paul tells us this is what happened at the cross. He says, and he, Jesus, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let me read it one more time. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So after the cross, after the resurrection, after Pentecost, and that's where we are, Paul is telling us that one of the, the most massively important effects of Christ's work on the cross is that we were freed from self-service into Christ-service. By the power of the cross, we can now deny ourselves and live for Christ. In other words, Christ's work enables us to actually deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. So, are we called then? Here's the question. Here's that application question. Are we called to deny ourselves, to follow Christ. Absolutely. 1 Peter 2.21 2, 2, says exactly this. 1 Peter 2.21, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Are we called to follow Christ? Yes, even now. So our calling is the same as it was to the disciples. We're not walking to Jerusalem, but we're called to follow after Christ. And we'll see more about what this means, what it means to deny ourselves as we work our way through the text. But I think we can confidently say from here on, that even though Jesus is talking to the disciples, his instruction applies to us on this side of the cross. Okay, so let's look at what else Jesus tells the disciples. He doesn't only say that they must take up their cross to come after Jesus. They must only, it's not just that they have to be willing to suffer to follow after Jesus. He gives them reasons why they should. Look at verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
Again, it's almost exactly what we saw in chapter 10. In chapter 10, loyalty to the king, loyalty to Christ, allegiance to Christ, meant that you would be willing to follow Christ even if it meant that your family hated you. And here in chapter 16, there must be a willingness to follow Christ even if death is a certainty. So regardless of the cost, honoring Jesus as the king and following him, Jesus is still teaching us, that's the way to life. That's the way to true life. Those who would cling to this life, I mean this life, the one we were born into, will not be found to be citizens of the kingdom of God, which means in the long run, they will end up losing what they were clinging to. This life, what does that mean? When Jesus says, whoever would save his life or her life, this life. This life is a, is a life where, as Jesus said last week, the mind is set on the things of man. This life is a, is a life that is marked by an inward, turned, guarded defensiveness. This life is characterized by a self-centered desire for wealth, a desire for power, a desire for control, a desire to have things the way we want them, and if we don't get it, we're mad. This life is fearful. This life is easily shaken. It is easily upset. This life seeks comfort and safety by any means necessary because this life is mostly concerned about prolonging this life. It's self-preservation. It's self-determination. It is self-promoting. That's the life that Jesus says, deny that. You've got to die to that life. And a lot of this harkens back to what Jesus taught us back in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? Think of the comparisons he gave us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Treasures on earth versus treasures in heaven. Trusting in wealth versus trusting in God. Are we anxious about this life or have we been freed from bondage to this life to seek the things of God, to trust in him? So Jesus here is not telling us anything new. But it's so important. It's so important because we so quickly fall back into a this life, worldly way of thinking that we have to be reminded of this over and over and over and over again every week. That's why we have one another, isn't it? We have to be reminded of this every week. That's why we have the Word of God, isn't it? So, so we can be reminded of this every day. We've got to remember that this life, all of the false sense of security that this life brings, it is the life that Christ has called us to deny. In verse 26, Jesus sets this life and life in Christ against one another. So we're going to see these two things coming into conflict. He's asking this question in verse 26. Look at verse 26. Is it worth it? to gain everything that this life, this world has to offer and lose your soul? Is that worth it? So suppose 
Suppose you could, through a commitment to this worldly, self-first way of thinking, suppose you could gain the entire world, Jesus is asking. So, so to put that concretely, if, if, world, if, if wealth, if wealth is your sense of security, what if you had all the wealth that the world could offer? Every last euro, every, every last ounce of gold, every last dollar, yen, pound, and peso. If you had all of it. And, and if, if worldly power is your sense of success, what if you, with just your phone, could control every president, every king, every prime minister, every dictator in the entire world? All you had to do was request it, and they did it. All of the powers of the world at your disposal. Is being safe what makes you feel good? Safety. What if you had the best home security system? Your own personal army guarding you and your house. What if you could guarantee that you would never get COVID? You would never get the flu. You would never get cancer. You would never trip and fall. You would never break a bone. You would never get in a car accident. What if this world can guarantee that you would never even again have a mosquito bite? What about relationships? Are relationships what you want? Well, we will give you, the world can give you the very best marriage, the very best friends that the world has to offer. No one will ever hurt you again. No one will ever turn on you. If you had all of that, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? You had all of that, perfect safety, total power, all the wealth in the world, perfect relationship, and, and let's add to it. Let's suppose you could also guarantee those things for your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids, all of that. What have you gained? What have you gained if you had absolutely everything that the world has to offer? Well, you're still going to die. You're still going to die one day. You will still give an account one day. And so will your kids, and so will your grandkids, and so will your great-grandkids. So what does it profit? That's what Jesus is asking. What does, a prof what does it profit a man or a woman if you have the whole world and all that makes the world happy and healthy and secure and wise and righteous, and yet because of a refusal to give it up to live for the king, you lose your soul. Jesus is asking a question that if you have not ever answered, you must. Because that question sets the trajectory of your life, doesn't it? That question makes every decision you make in your life an important decision. He's asking you, is it worth it? Is it a good exchange? What's your soul worth? Is all that this world has to offer worth your soul? And that's the extreme. He, he steps it out way out to 100% to the extreme. Now let's walk it back. If having everything that the world has to offer isn't worth your soul, and that's the answer. The answer is no. It's not worth your soul. If having everything isn't worth your soul, how about just half of it? If, if you could have half of what the world has to offer, is that worth your soul? Well, no, because everything wasn't. What about just a quarter of it? What about just a tenth of it? 
You see Jesus' logic here? I think I'm missing a page. I don't know how that happens. It's impossible. It's not even paper. All right. Is all that the world has to offer worth your soul? Now, to drive this, this point home, he gives us verse 27, because what he's telling us here is that judgment is coming. That is built into that, is it worth your soul question, isn't it? It's built into it. He's talking about loyalty. Are you, are you loyal to yourself? Do you seek to preserve yourself first, or are you going to be loyal to him? Will you deny yourself to follow him? Is your allegiance, your trust, your loyalty to the things of the world and all that the world can give you? Or is it to Christ? If it's to the world, he's saying, it's not worth it because judgment is coming. Look at verse 27. Verse 27. And, and verse 27 shows us this. This is not a mental exercise. Right? This is not, this is not a hypothetical question that Jesus is asking in verse 26. This is real life. There are real consequences to where your loyalty lies. There are real consequences to the decisions that you make that show where your loyalty lies. Look at verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. That sounds big. What he means is judgment day is coming. And the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite way of identifying himself, Jesus the Messiah, He's going to be doing the one, doing the judging. And, and look how Matthew words this. He says, he will repay each person according to what he has done. There's not any, there's no getting away from this. This repayment, this, this judgment is coming. And what Jesus teaches here is repeated throughout the, the New Testament. So, and if, if that seems troubling to you, if you haven't thought about a coming judgment, even for Christians, I want you to write down these verses and study them if you're a note taker. If you need to email me and ask me for these verses later on, I'd be happy to send them to you. But here we go. Romans 2.6. It's going to teach the same thing. Romans 14.12. 2 Corinthians 5.10. And then Revelation 2.23. Revelation 20.12. In Revelation 22:12. All of these teach that this judgment is coming and we will be judged according to our deeds. So what Jesus is saying here is not just a one-off thing that we can wiggle around by some really good Bible studying. This is true. This is happening. It's coming. All of these passages say the same thing. We will be judged according to our deeds. But what does that mean is what we need to ask. Not, is that actually going to happen, but what does that mean? Does that mean that God takes all of our good works and puts them on one side of the scale and all of our evil works and puts them on the other side of the scale and then weighs it out to see what happens in the end? If the good outweighs the bad, good reward. If the bad outweighs the good, then damnation. Is that 
what Jesus is saying? Shake your head no. That's not what Jesus is saying, right? That, that, that's Islam. That's not Christianity. So think about the context here. Think about the context. In the context here, verse 24, Jesus tells us what loyalty or trusting him looks like. Following Jesus means denying ourselves, taking up the cross, and coming after him. So based just on that context, what do you think the judgment is considering? What, what deeds, what work is the Son of Man considering when he returns as judge in the glory of the Father with his angels? Well, here's what's being weighed. Was a person's life characterized by allegiance to King Jesus, regardless of the cost? Or, or was a person's life characterized by allegiance to self, and by extension, the things of the world? Which is it? That's the judgment. Mark and Luke record Jesus saying this this way. They say, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. See the similarity? What's Jesus looking for? Were you ashamed of me in this life? In Matthew, were you loyal to Jesus in this life? That's the question. That's the judgment. Did you live for yourself? Did you live as a citizen of the world? Or did you shamelessly live in obedience to the king? With allegiance to the king as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? That's the question. That's the judgment. You see, your, your belonging to Christ's kingdom is not based on you saying Jesus is king. It's not even just believing he's king. The demons believe that he's king. Your belonging to Christ's kingdom is not based on a prayer you prayed. It's not based on walking down an aisle or raising your hand or signing a little paper. I want to make that clear. When, when, when King Jesus comes back as judge of all the world, he's not going to ask you, did you or did you not recite the sinner's prayer? That's not his question. The basis, before we move on, you need to know this, the basis for your belonging to Christ is Christ's work for you. But when Christ died, he died in order that you would live for him and not for yourself. So the question he asks on judgment day is, did you? Did you? If you're truly in Christ, listen carefully, because we're going to get really deep into the weeds here. If you're really, truly in Christ, if you're truly a kingdom citizen, then by the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, by the new nature that has been given to you in Christ, and by the will of the Father, it's Trinitarian, guess what will happen? If that's true of you, if you've been born again, your deeds will show your loyalty to King Jesus. Ephesians 2.10 says that your new life in Christ, I'm paraphrasing, your new life in Christ is one where you were recreated, created newly in Christ for those good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Who gets the credit? God does. You're not saved by works. That's not what I'm saying here. But you will be judged. If you're a Christian, you will 
walk in those works that glorify Christ and make much of Christ. Your deeds will prove your allegiance to Christ. And that's going to happen by the power of the Spirit working in you. But you will be judged. Did you give up this life so that you could live as a kingdom citizen, bearing allegiance to King Jesus, though you could not see him? Is that kingdom reality what characterized your life? Or the easier way, did you hedge your bets? Did you keep your options open in this life? Because you weren't sure whether it was really worth it to live as one totally committed to King Jesus. One foot in the baptistry, one foot in the stock market. Verse 27 is given to the disciples and to us to remind us there will be a day of reckoning. Now, before we get to verse 28, the moment you've all been waiting for, <laughs> before we get to verse 28, I want you to think again back to these disciples, right? Because we, we want to advance this to our application because this is really applicable stuff to our lives. But think of the people that Jesus is talking to here. I want you to think again back to the disciples. They have a decision to make. They are up there in the north country. And Jesus is just about to start walking south down to Jerusalem through Galilee. And for the disciples who know what's coming, he's going to the cross. He's going to suffer. We're going to suffer too. They know that's coming. This is a, no, a go or no-go moment. And they have to choose. Jesus is giving them the choice here. They have to choose. Are they going to follow after him or are they not going to follow after him? If they choose to follow him and they continue to live there from their own out as if Jesus truly is their king, well, then they gain life, don't they? Jesus just promised them. Come after me, deny yourself, get life. That's the one hand, that's the, 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 big, the, the big good thing that they're looking at. But if they choose to bail out now, after hearing about the cross and this suffering business, and it doesn't sound that great. I mean, if I'm not going to get anything in this life because of following you, Jesus. Well, there's a warning. The Son of Man will come as judge. Do you see the dilemma that they face? Suffering in this life, eternal life with Christ, comfortable life, judgment. Now, this last verse, verse 28, can easily get lost in the mix here. The temptation for us is to end on that judgment is coming, so you better make the right decision note. And then we turn to verse 28, and we say, let's figure out when Jesus is coming back. All right? But that's short-sighted. Verse 28 is meant to be an encouragement. It is meant to be a promise of reassurance for the disciples. It's not an end times puzzle. All right, so think about it. You're one of the disciples. You're there with Jesus. Jesus, this is the first time that he's told you this. He's just told you the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of the Father as judge. And you, you look at him, size him up, 
He's this short, burly, Jewish carpenter-looking guy. His feet are dirty. It's been a while since they were near any water. He kind of smells funny. They haven't had baths in a few days. And as Isaiah says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. There's no angel standing there with Jesus. It's just, it's Jesus. He's got power. We've seen the power. They know that. They know he's going to be king. But there's no glory. Not, not this Father's glory that he talks about. And he's telling you, you need to make a decision whether you're going to follow him because he's going to come in glory as judge. You can, you can see the, the look on their faces, can't you? You? Right? I thought you, I thought you were Israel's promised king. Now you're saying you're the one who comes in the end to judge the world. That what Messiah means to them has just gotten turned up a few notches, hasn't it? So, just in case the disciples doubt the truth of, of this judgment that Jesus says is coming, he gives them verse 28. That's the purpose of verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So I'm going to just put my cards on the table. This is not talking about the second coming of Christ. It can't be. Because Jesus is saying that some of them standing there will see. They will see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. And as far as I know, Jesus has not returned. So either Jesus was wrong when he says coming in his kingdom, or he doesn't mean second coming. What, what's happening is that Jesus is showing them that the reason that they can be assured that dying to themselves and following him is worth it, and the reason that they can trust that there is a cost if they don't, is that they're going to see him coming in his kingdom. That's the stamp. That's the sign. The Son of Man coming to his kingdom is not the second coming, but is instead the coming of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days to be given dominion. Is this familiar? Daniel 7. If you have a Bible, open up Daniel 7. And this is important because you are going to want to see what's happening here. Remember, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man all the time. And he does that because of Daniel 7. There's ambiguity there, just enough to where you might think he might not be talking about Daniel 7, but here he is. So look at Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 13 and 14. This is Daniel speaking. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And then this is the key. Don't miss this. And to him, the Son of Man, to the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Now, the question is, when does that happen? Because that's what Jesus is talking about, the coming of the Son of Man to be given a kingdom. 
When does it happen? Well, think about it this way, because you already know the answer. There will be a time in Matthew's gospel when Jesus will say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Where is that? To the end, Matthew 28, 18. Not long after the resurrection. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all who... Nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So, let's bring these together. What was given to the Son of Man in Daniel when he came to the Ancient of Days? All authority. Dominion, power, kingdom, all authority. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me. What else was given to the Son of Man in Daniel when he was presented to the Ancient of Days, to the Father? The nations. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. That's why Jesus sends the disciples to the nations in Matthew 28. What else does Daniel say, will be characteristic of the Son of Man coming into his kingdom? Well, he will be given an everlasting kingdom. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 28? I will be with you always. Always. In other words, I will always be your king. So Matthew 28, 18, for us as Christians reading this, this is our flashing sign. The Son of Man, Jesus the Messiah, has come into his kingdom. And if you're like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, there's more. Okay, let me give you more. We have more biblical evidence than just Matthew 28. I think that one's enough, but I'm going to be favor favorable towards you. Think about Philippians 2. We read this one earlier. What did... What did Dustin read? Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, in other words, because of his death on the cross, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. What's that? That's power. That's authority, isn't it? That's dominion language. Dominion has been given to Jesus as a result of his conquering work on the cross. One more passage. Romans 1.4. Romans 1.4 says, He, Jesus, was declared to be the Son of God. That means King, Messiah. He was declared to be Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Okay, so when was he declared to be Messiah, Son of God? After his resurrection from the dead. He's declared that by the Holy Spirit. So, the baptism of Jesus, and then his cross, and then his grave, and then his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven, that whole sequence is not just you and I getting our sins forgiven. Though it is not less than that. This is the glory of it. 
at his baptism, the Messiah was anointed as king when the Holy Spirit came on him. At the cross, the Messiah was crowned as king, and he was given a people. He was given a kingdom for whose sins his death would atone for. At the resurrection, the Messiah was declared by the Holy Spirit in power to be the everlasting king. And at the ascension into heaven, the Messiah king is given his throne. And now he reigns from that throne at the right hand of the Father until, as 1 Corinthians 15, 25 says, until all of his enemies are put underneath his feet. Now, did some of the disciples who were standing there live to see that day when the Son of Man, Jesus the Messiah, was given his kingdom? Did they see the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension part of the story? Yes, they did. Jesus wasn't lying to them. He wasn't mistaken. And here's why verse 28 was an encouragement to the disciples. Seeing those events and being reminded of what Jesus had told them emboldened them. It emboldened them to live as representatives of the king, ambassadors of the king. Verse 28, it was, was a promise whose fulfillment brought boldness and joy and confidence to the disciples. Because every disciple who heard Jesus prophesy right then about receiving the kingdom, and every disciple who lived to see the risen Lord, they all gave their lives to see his saving kingship proclaimed to the nations, to the world. They lived their lives to glorify the king, to bring honor to the king. They lived not for themselves, but for him. They all died for him. And friend, that is our eternal king's calling on your life. Deny yourself. Deny all of the trappings, all the wonderful trappings that this world has to offer. Deny the very real sense of security that this world gives and exchange it. Exchange it for the eternal joy of life in him. And I know you're thinking, well, we don't have the privilege of having seen the risen king. We don't. We don't have what the disciples had. They, they got that promise and the fulfillment. But I will tell you what we have. We have their word inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is written by apostles who all said, I saw him. And we'll see next week how important that is when we get to the, the, the transfiguration. But not only do we have the word, we have and the Apostle John tells us this, we have the Holy Spirit testifying in us that Christ is King and that we belong to Him. We, we can't see what they got to see, but we have the Spirit in us in, in, in as much a powerful witness to us that they had. 
Our king reigns. And friends, if you have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit to believe that, then you have been set free from sin by Christ on the cross. And you have been empowered by the Holy Spirit in you to live as if he is king. Because he is. Amen? Let's pray.